you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 859. This episode brought to you by Squarespace. Uh, whether you need a, any kind of portfolio or digital presence that is not basic social media, uh, if you want a store to sell your products or services, or a blog, you just need you just need more than 140 characters, and you don't want to put it on Facebook because <laughs> you just get a lot of really weird, irrational comments in your threads there. So you want to make your own blog, sure. Squarespace gives you everything you need to make your next move into uh, the reality of your own digital domain, including a free domain. Not to mention with Squarespace's beautifully designed templates and customizable features, a website is a very simple and intuitive process uh, as long as you're using Squarespace. So just add and arrange your content with a click of a mouse. Start your free trial today. Squarespace.com enter the offer code NERDIST to get 10% off your first purchase, plus that free domain with a purchase of an annual plan. Uh, let's talk about the NERDIST Community Corkboard. These are goings-on in your world. Well, first of all, I have to mention that the uh, ID10T Festival is fully happening. Um, This is June 24 and 25. Uh, It's going to be happening in Mountain View, California, in Silicon Valley. I'm talking about bands like Weezer, OK Go, Car Seed Headrest, The Mowgli's, Girl Talk, TV on the Radio, Crystal Castles. Uh, More bands being added as we speak. Uh, I'm talking about a comedy tent, so you got your, your Garfunkel and Oates, your Brian Possein, uh, your Michael Che, your Yasser Lester, your Dimitri Martin, your April Richardson, uh, and Hamor com- Comics being added as well. And speaking of comics, not the comedian parts, but the comics comics, the centerpiece of ID10T is a Comic-Con. Because I've been to so many festivals, I've performed at so many festivals, and I always felt like, oh, I wish the booths had more stuff, the exhibitor booths had more stuff that was relevant to my interests. So that was the uh, that was the the seed of the idea of you know can we have stuff going on at all times um, that is kind of in uh, in the vein of stuff that uh, that I'm like and probably stuff that you like if you listen to this podcast. But no matter what, there's something going on at any given minute that hopefully will be fun and engaging to you. Go do go to id10tfest.com. That's id the number ten t fest. Dot com and get tickets because they're selling. Uh, there you go. There's also an EDM tent for the kids. Uh, let's see what else is on the Nerdist Community Corkboard. Oh, this weekend, March 18 and 19, the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles is uh, LA Nature Fest. It's going to have over 30 exhibitor booths, scientists, and nature experts to answer questions, live animal presentations, nature walks, gardening tips, arts and crafts, and a whole lot more. It's going to be fun and educational for your entire family. LA Nature Fest is free with a general admission ticket. More info can be found at nhm.org. Mark Karen writes, 
Hey, I'd like to post a note recommending a good friend of mine's first novel. Well, you have done that. It's called Hero's Road by Chuck Rogers. A sword and sorcery tale in the battle of man versus orc. Disgraced, destitute, and dishonorably discharged. Cole, Apmath, and Snorri Yaroslav are soldiers without our cause. When a mysterious sorcerer makes them an offer they can't afford to refuse, they set out on an adventure that will take them around the known world, and one that will determine the world's fate. Available on Amazon Kindle for a mere $5.99. This episode is Danny Boyle, who's awesome. Oh my god. The guy, listen, not only has he made some of uh, my favorite movies and probably some of your favorite movies... They're all so vastly different, yet you still see, like, oh, yeah, I can see how the same guy made all these incredible uh, different movies. I mean, Train Spotting, Shallow Grave, 28 Days Later, Slumdog Millionaire, 127 Hours, Steve Jobs, and now Train Spotting 2, which is actually in theaters this Friday, March 17th. And uh, he's, the, like, this nicest. He was so cool. I had no idea. You never know. You know, maybe uh, some some directors, it's like, oh, when they're on a set, then they can really open up. But, you know, when they're on a one-on-one play. But he was fantastic. Like, legit a guy that you would want to go have a coffee with. I say coffee, maybe you want beer or, or ale. I don't know. But uh, but he's definitely a, he's a good hang, Danny Boyle. And I, it, was, it was a real honor and real fun to talk to him. So, uh, yeah, Danny Boyle on this episode of the Nerds Podcast, which also sponsored by Stamps.com. Stamp. See, I mean, I hope Stamps.com never stops sponsoring the Nerdist Podcast, but of course, if everyone in the world used Stamps.com, I guess they probably would. So, But you know what? It's a risk I'm going to have to take. Stamps.com saves you time and money. You can use that time to grow your business mail. Any letter packet, just using the computer and a printer, and then the mail carrier picks it up. No more hassle the post office. No more waiting in line, dropping all your packages, waiting while someone mails like... 42 different size packages and they've never been in a post office before and you're like 40 people deep and it's almost 5 o'clock and the traffic's going to be terrible and it, it's raining outside and it just everything. Have I painted the grim picture? Stay in your house and use stamps.com 24-7. It is available to you 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. If there were 8 days a week, it'd be available then too. It's convenient, easy, and flexible. Uh, all the services of the U.S. Post Office right at your fingertips. They're going to send you a digital scale. You know, it's, it, you're going to get that on the, in the four-week trial plus postage. Go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Nerdist. That's stamps.com under the promo code Nerdist. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. All right, here's Nerdist Podcast number 859 with Mr. Danny Boyle. Now entering Nerdist.com. I'm sorry for my full TV makeup. I just got off work. I've got makeup Apologize. on. I've got makeup on as well. You do? I just went into Starbucks on the way here, and I was thinking I was sitting there. Is that? Yeah, you, maybe you can't tell. I, I have can't got tell. On. I've been on what? Tavis. Oh, Tavis Smiley. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. Do you feel when you were at Starbucks, were you, were you like, can I just have a cut? Like, were you hiding your face? <laughs> well, I was, you know, thinking, oh God, if anybody sees, <laughs> I'll do that thing where I exp- over-explain. You know, I've just been on TV. What's your drink that's at Starbucks? What do you like? An Americana. 
I am a tall Americano for Danny Boyle, who's clearly wearing makeup in the Starbucks right now. Oh, no. Please don't. Would you like some water? Some water for you. That's very kind. How's your press tour been so far? Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, we're good. We're good. I've done, I've done, I've been uh, all over the world, literally from Moscow, all over Europe and India and Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. So it's like, whoa. And just probably in just the past week. Yeah, no, it was pr- it was quite intense. Oh my so God. Um, it was good. Italy was best. Yeah, what was great about Italy? What did you like? Oh, Rome. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's just, and I was thinking it's like everybody behaves like an aristocrat in Italy. <laughs> and the French try to and fail, but the Italians, <laughs> the Italians just are aristocrats because they've so much fucking history. It's yeah. just like effortless. Yeah. So oh, the, Coliseum? Yeah. It's ours. Yeah, that's really yeah, yeah, we don't look there. after it, but it's yeah. there, you know. Roads, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> like everything about it. But do you, do you, have you ever thought like maybe I'll just make a movie set in Rome so I can just go spend six months in Rome? Well, funnily enough, Whoa. funny you should say that. Interesting. We are making our next, it's, it's actually a television thing for FX, but it's part, it's half set in Rome, half in in uh, London, just outside London. What is it? It's about the Gettys. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember the Getty story? Which what, which Getty story are you talking about? So the grandson who was kidnapped right. in Rome. Yeah. He was 15, and he was kidnapped in Rome. And his grandfather, who lived in England, mm-hmm. John Paul Getty, he was the richest man, not just the richest man in the world, He's the, they think he was the richest man in history, equivalent-wise, sure. to everyone else around him, um, refused to pay the ransom. Because he suspected that the kid was um, had organised it himself. Oh. It was a chip off the old block, was a bit of a businessman. <laughs> and it turned out he had. Wow. But what happened when he declined to pay the ransom, um, some of the guys who'd helped the kid organise staged the kidnap so it looked like a kidnap. One of them sold, without telling anyone, sold the contract for the kidnapping onto the real mafia. So the kid went from being a kind of like producer and star of his own movie to being the real victim. And they cut his ear off. Oh, my God. And they sent it in the post with the message that this is your grandson. You'll pay the ransom now or we'll send the rest of him by post. And uh, he did pay the ransom. And they invested the money that the ransom that he paid in a port in Italy through which they began the cocaine trade into Europe. And now 80% of Europe's cocaine comes through that port. Well, I mean, that's just industrious right there. I mean, that is really... It's just like, you just think, you read this stuff and you think, that can't be. That can't be real. That surely isn't. It's, it's all true, apparently. Yeah. So, when, so when you're making a story like this, that where people know, like where, you know, where the information is readily available, like, well, here's what happened. Yeah. How are you approaching this? And Because I feel like people are so crazy about having things spoiled for them anymore that I wonder how that affects when you're doing, you know, like a true story where someone knows, well, we know how this turned out. So, you know, what are you doing along the way when you're, when you're kind of mapping out, mapping that out? I think you depend on amnesia, really. I think, and I, <laughs> no, it's really, and I, I, I really think people have amnesia when they go, we were just talking outside about uh, trailers. I think people get, I get amnesia, but I see everything as you do these days, everything's in the trailer. Yeah. But it doesn't spoil the film for me because I go in and I kind of like, I'm still shocked at the moment I've seen <laughs> twice already. Yeah. You know, um, 
because you kind of you kind of you're complicit in forgetting what you know I think and I think that's true of true stories as well you still fear that he'll die even though you know he won't die because sure. he's still alive he sure. was interviewed last week and- <laughs> he was talking about how yeah. he got involved with the project uh, all that kind of stuff so but yeah. also your style is so visual that I feel like you know as a as a director people go oh well if Danny Danny Boyle's take on this is probably doesn't matter if i know what the thing is i know that it's going to be this kind of visual exploration of this story and maybe that's you know that that has a lot to do with just what you've established yeah you hope that you hope that the kind of like the way you present it is dynamic enough that you can uh kind of voluntarily gain amnesia because you kind of just get caught up in the caught up, caught up in the experience and and don't want to know the outcome don't want to be conscious of the outcome until you find it, really, until it's there. Like the, we did that 127 Hours, yeah. which is about the guy who cut his arm off. And yeah. everybody knows that. It's well documented. He goes around giving Microsoft lectures about it right. you know, to Microsoft executives, you know, telling them about his whole experience. He's written a book about it. But you still hope that in Franco's performance that you're going to get caught up in and think, what's he going to do? He's not going to cut his arm off, is he? <laughs> no, he can't. No, what? Yeah, you know but this he is does. what happened. But you know, you know this is, is what happened. That's the amnesia, I think. So, yeah. I mean, you must have worked pretty closely with him when you were working on the film. The the guy who Aaron Ralston, yes, yes, yes he was he was involved. It's interesting because when you when you do something, we've just been involved actually in um, a uh, film about Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. That oh wow, film, the Battle of the Sexes, yeah. And um, as executive producers, and 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 again, that's another case where you have a real person whose life story you're looking at, and you have to respect that, and and you have to be truthful about it, but you have to dramatise it as well. Um, and John and Val, who directed it, the directors from Little Miss Sunshine, um, have done a wonderful job in negotiating that. Where you want to keep, you want to keep your subject um, happy that is that it's an accurate portrayal, that it's not inaccurate portrayal right. of their life. And yet you also have to harvest drama whenever you can out of the circumstances, you know. So, and that was true with Aaron Ralston as well. We, we had him involved, but you have to keep him at a distance as well. You can't literally make it like it's a letter to his mom. Right. You know, it has to be for everyone, you know. Right. And then did, did you not show him, did you wait to show him what you were doing? Did you only show him bits and pieces or did he, was he there the he, whole time? He, he was there for some of the shooting, but then we showed it to him in front of an audience actually. Um, that was, and he came in in front of a test audience when we were testing it, mm-hmm. so we, we could still make changes. Yeah. And he 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 came in in a in a in a hat and a disguise and all that kind of stuff and watched it. That was an extraordinary experience for him, I think, to see his story, which only he witnessed, portrayed by a bunch of a hundred and twenty other people, right, in front of three hundred people, you know, at a test screen. Right. So that's a bizarre experience. And looking at James Franco saying the things, some of the things that he said, doing exactly the things he did and said and reported in his book. What did he say to you immediately after the screen? He was very overcome. Actually, it was a bit much for him. I think. I mean, it was a bit of a weird one for him. I think he was like, I mean, he was wonderful, but he was really overcome by it. Sure. The, 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 and I think particularly the, because what we were after the whole time, and it was difficult to explain to him, was obviously the intensity of immersion. Like, I never wanted to cut away from the guy in the canyon. I always wanted to just stay there. Whereas in his book, he keeps cutting away. Presumably because an editor told him, oh, people will get sick of the canyon. Yeah. They, they want to know what's happening to your mom. Or they want to know what's happening to your friends at work. And so he did alternate chapters. And I said, I don't want to do the alternate chapters. I just want to, when he goes in there, I want him to feel, I want the audience to feel that they know what it's like to get to the point where you will consider 
cutting off your own arm. Sure. And in fact, they'll get to the point where they would do it themselves because they'll go in thinking, I could never do that. Right. I mean, I would never do that. If that happened to me, I wouldn't do that. But you wanted to take them to the point where they will do it, literally. And, they'll, and then they'll be able to watch it. Because otherwise, a, a movie like that's unwatchable. You never, you know, unless it's a horror movie. You, why are you going to watch something like that? You've got to be on the journey where you think you could believe you'd do that yourself, really. So we tried to make it as, as immersive as possible, really. And um, so for him, I think, to be both fully back in that experience and also abstracted from it because it's not him and only he witnessed it. So there can't be any version that's true of it mm-hmm. because only he can see that version right. of it. You know, right. even though we copied the canyon, we copied all the equipment. Everything was exactly the same. It's like the experiment ruins the like the doing the experiment kind of ruins the experiment in yes. a way. It's yeah. like you can't. It's still still synthetic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's, but it wasn't for audiences, and we had and that was the problem we had with that movie. We had all sorts of fainting and all sorts of then these rumors went around that you couldn't watch it with people were fainting. And I remember going up to Pixar. We had a screening at Pixar. Oh wow. And I remember being so excited going to Pixar. I was going to go and have a look round. And I remember turning up. So they take you there for, to time you at the end of the screening. And as we drove up, there was an ambulance outside. Oh, I thought, geez. oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Maybe, that, uh, maybe the giant lamp jumped on someone. Maybe that's what it was. The big lamp just squashed a person. Maybe it had anything to do with the movie at all. There was another screening where this person had passed out and it was carried out. Oh. I mean, literally carried out the screen. And, and I saw them being carried out. And I saw them being, they were, they were laid on these steps. You know, and they just, they came round like that. And they were fine. <laughs> they were, like, absolutely fine. You expect people who've passed out to be, like, slow recovery. Sure. No, they just went, oh. And they saw me and they went, oh, hello. <laughs> like that. It's like... It's bizarre seeing all that. Anyway. Is there something that it, that you... Well, it's, I guess let's, uh, the 127 Hours is a great example of that. But, it, but is there something inside of you with each of these scripts where you go, I'm not going to tell anyone else, but I have this secret idea about what this is. And that's just personal. That's for me. Because I'm sure with, with that movie, people go, oh, it's about a guy who cuts his arm off. But to you, it's probably a com- – there's, there's something completely different behind it, right? Well, for me on that one, it was could we take – I knew from everyone, everyone's reaction that they couldn't imagine themselves doing that. It was an absolute barrier. They thought, I would never do – how could you do that? And that's the reason to make the film in a way, to say, how could you do that? And the, the reason you could do that was actually, for me, was to do with loneliness rather than, rather than actually the, the physical act. It was the only way that he could get back to the people that he had not spurned, but the people that he turned his back on. Because he was a figure that embraced the solitariness, the solitude of the individual. Yeah. And yet, when he was there, it was the feel of comfort, of company the simplest thing we all take for granted that he missed so much, yeah. just that sense of other people, and that he would do anything to get back to that. So it was to try and... It was, I was trying to get at that, really, the sense of the crowd, really, in a way, in a, in a film that's about nothing, no crowd, about just one person. That's interesting. You know, when I think about... And it didn't occur to me until just now, but when I think about... When I'm kind of laying out all of your films in my head, I, IMDb style, it seems like they're all very human stories about what people do to survive, like Shallow Grave, yeah. or it's literally 28 Days Later, yeah. you know, this, Train Spotting, Slumdog. It's all about, like, what do, what are, what's human about survival and what do real humans do to survive? And the, so I, 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 you do these press tours and things like that, and, they, and, um, and, you, and you do find out stuff about everybody thinks they're boring, which they are to a certain degree because you're repeating yourself. But, you know, everybody repeats themselves at work. It's, that's work. It's just repetitive sometimes. 
But they're also riveting as well, because sometimes you meet a journalist and they'll tell you something that you had not absolutely realised at all. <laughs> they'll point something out that you realise is absolutely true, but that you'd no idea. So I met the... And the French are especially good at it. They take films very, very seriously yes, in yes. France. A lot of things very seriously. <laughs> but, but especially films. <laughs> films themselves. And this journalist said to me, she said, she said, all your films are exactly the same. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> and th- she said, oh, no, she said, I enjoy them very much. But she said, they're all exactly the same. And I said, how do you mean? She said, they're all about someone facing insurmountable obstacles and overcoming them. And I thought, and you think about that, and it's absolutely true, that, actually. Um, for a lot of them, anyway. I think they may have sure. changed since she told me that. I think I may have deliberately tried to change it. But it was that. And 127 Lives is a very good example of it. It's not my story. It's his story. But choosing to focus on it, you, why are you interested in that? And the guy is facing com- something completely impossible, and yet he overcomes it. And in overcoming it, that's healing. There's something healing and positive about overcoming that really no matter yeah. what stands in your way you can you can overcome it you know and Slumdog Millionaire's that the kid from the slum ending up you know on the top game show in the world winning the top prize and winning the girl and you know it's like you overcome the obstacles to get there you know but that's a beautiful fairy tale too like that's a beautiful fairy yes, that has it's a, a fairy great tale. beautiful fairy tale story to it of you know, Papa becomes prince and, he, it, you know, like love prevails and doing the right thing prevails. Absolutely. We all love to believe in that. For, sh- for sure. For, for sure. But I know like with 28 Days Later, I know that there were alternate endings where it didn't work out well for Jim it, it, or it just like, oh, everyone dies or yes. he dies. Or yeah, he do- did die in one and Naomi was left on her own. It was really bleak and we shot it. She acted it brilliantly, where she tries to bring him... They end up in this hospital, this disused hospital, where, of course, he'd started in a hospital, and, she, and, he, and she's trying to pump life back into his heart. And she was, oh, my God, she was like... I remember her performance thinking, oh, my God. And then she wandered off on her own with the other girl, out into the world on their own, and he died. But, yeah, we, we went with hope, really, on that one. We went with a slightly happier <laughs> ending. But I think they released multiple endings in the States because the, the guy who was releasing it, Peter Rice, I think he was very smart. He released it with one ending and then he said, here's a different ending. And people went again because it did a surprisingly big gross. Yeah. Here. So it did, very, it did rather well. Well, you know, particularly in that genre of film, there's so, there are so many. Like, you know, horror films for most people are like, yeah, you can make them for cheap and every once in a while one will make a shit ton of money. But when you, when you see a really good one yeah. and, you know, 28 Days Later is like – that is in the pantheon of great horror movies. It just it, – you, you love it even more because you're like, oh, there's so much crap out there. But there's this glimmering gem. Yeah, I felt that about Don't Breathe last year. You know, yeah. they, that yeah. Fede Alvarez yeah. movie. I don't yeah. know who he is. And, but I thought that was – I thought – as a director, you, sometimes you watch another – a young director's work and you go, wow, that is it. And that guy really knows how to do it. Yeah. And you I, should what, see Get Out, by the way. I hear it's very good. Yes. I haven't seen it yet. I know yeah. the guy who's in it, Daniel Kalua, uh, the, 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 the lead yep. guy in it. I know him, but I haven't seen the movie yet. You know? It's great. And so do you think, you know, because my friend, my friend Jonah, when someone has said, uh, oh, 28 Days is a great zombie movie, he goes, no, no, it's not a zombie movie. It's an outbreak virus movie. <laughs> it's, a ra- it's a rage virus. They're not yeah. zombies. It's rage virus. I know. You get into these very particular <laughs> definitions. And when you're making them, there are all these rules. You have to set yourself rules and then you have to keep to them because they have to be able to behave. You know, your, your creatures or you're infected or you're zombies or whatever you're going to call them, you're enraged or whatever they are. 
they you have to attribute to them facilities at the beginning, things they can do right. and things they can't do, and you have to stick to that. Yeah. Because, because otherwise you get killed. And, and, <laughs> uh, literally. And, and, and they, 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 that's how you build your film. Because those are the strictures you have. You know they can't get out of this because, you know, they can't climb walls or right. they can climb walls, so they can't escape from them by going behind a wall. So it's very, very important part of it. It's really laborious, actually, working all that out at the beginning about what they're capable of and what they aren't. Yeah, because it's funny that an audience will suspend their disbelief that this this is happening, but they will not suspend if you break your own rules. Yeah, they want to believe that it's a properly con- confected universe right. that's actually been sorted out and there are rules <laughs> like there is for real life. You know, you've got to be able to breathe, you need to eat or you die, things like that. Yeah, they need to know those things. Yeah. But I, I, I wonder how many, how many times do you come up against that where you say... Uh, you know, because I would imagine people look at you and go, oh, Danny Boyle, he's got his whole film thing figured out. He knows exactly what he's doing. But then to hear like, well, you know, we tried one thing and then we had oh. to be flexible and it didn't work. I mean. Oh, yeah, it's full of that. You kind of, you hope that the end product makes you look omnipotent, but you're anything but when you're making the thing. You know, if you have a successful one, you appear omnipotent for a moment. <laughs> like, you know what you're, you, you really know what you're doing and you're after that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it worked out just exactly as you planned. Quite the reverse is true, in, in fact. You kind of stumble around. And I think the stumbling around is really valuable, I think. I think I've made mistakes where I think I... where I was, like, knowing too much, thinking I knew how to do it. And it's best when you don't know how to do it, genuinely, and you're kind of stumbling around a bit. And I think that's... I have this theory that your first films are often your best films, and I think that's true as well, because really, that's really when you're at your purest. You really don't know what you're doing, and, and you're kind of trying to work it out. And obviously, you can fail terribly at that point and never make another film again because you really fall flat on your face. But if you can pull it off, there's nothing better, because you've not committed that sin of... The cunning, the, the knowingness. Sure. It's so technical movies. You know, they, they're so manipulative and technical. And you can use things like that. And that's not delicious, that. Whereas innocence is. Where it, and you're innocent and you find your way. That's a wonderful feeling, you know, when you get there. And um, that's interesting, too, because it feels like innocence is also a thread that, that weaves through a lot of your films, too. Like, you know, even with I mean, going back to Shallow Grave, what happens? This guy, there's money. This guy dies. What do we do? You know, there's like a train spotting is all about lo- about about innocence and, yes, and, is, and yeah. losing innocence. Yeah, it is. They're very. It was weird doing the second one because you, you have to look at you have to say what is the first one about. And, and, and at the time, of course, everybody was saying it was about drugs. It's about pop culture. And actually, you realise it's actually about the title of the Richard Linklater film. It's actually about boyhood, the first one. Because mm-hmm. when you do the second one, which is 20 years later, and it's actually about manhood, you, that's when you realise the first one's about boyhood. And that time, I mean, they're in their early 20s. It's not teenager land, but it's the same idea. It's the recklessness of that time where you don't care about anything. You have, you just abandoned. You, you, and and the, it doesn't matter. It's, somebody can fall victim and even that doesn't matter. You know, Tommy dies in the first one. They don't really, they don't really take that on board. Right. I mean, they're sad, but like for a day. Right. You know, and then it's gone because you just keep ca- careering down that pathway. And it's only later when there's a reckoning, when there's an accounting, a time to take, take account, really. Yeah. But, um, so that's, the, that's what it felt like. And it, so it makes you assess what that first film was about. And it's about that innocence and, and and that energy and that youth you know and then you and then you 
you, you, you just amplify that with pop culture, music and style, you know, this kind of style we love to see in films because it's joyous and kind of like flamboyant and kind of disrespectful to the classicists and, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. I think it's about I, – I, I, and I think, you say, I think it, it's – they're aware of it in the movie, but it's that idea of choose life. You know, I think that's what it's about. Yeah. Because they're choosing, you know, they're choosing their lives in the beginning. And then in the second one, which I saw last night, it was great. They're <laughs> continuing, like, even in their 40s, they're still having to choose the lives that they want and the lives that they lead. Well, he has, he updates that speech. That's, that's I, I remember, yeah. So he updates it, which is like a kind of, sort of to be expected. And everybody said to us, when we said we're going to do a sequel, everybody said, so they said like, oh, so the soundtrack will be good, yeah? <laughs> That's all, yeah. <laughs> like, you just like, it's easy that, yeah, the soundtrack will be really good. And then, but they also said, there'll be a, you'll, you'll be updating the Choose Life speech then. <laughs> and you go, oh, well, yeah, we were thinking of it. So, so you do. But I loved what he did in the writing of it because he, he updates it, yes, and which is entertaining. But he, about three quarters of the way through it, Ewan McGregor says he, it becomes more confessional. And it hasn't got that sarcastic mocking right. of, you know, the choices that are available to people, which he begins with. Which is easy when you're a youth, you know, to have that kind of sneer about <laughs> what, what's on offer to you. Right. You know, and what we all, cho- what we all start choosing. But it becomes about his own disappointment, really, in, in, in his choices, in what he's... In, you know, and he and he hasn't become the person that he wanted to become, really. Um, so it's actually quite confessional in the end. It begins as a kind of like a repeat, yeah. And and that's typical of doing one after another after twenty years. It has to be the same but different. That's the weird um, contradiction of it. If if it's if it's if it's all the same, they'll kill you. And if it's all different, they'll kill you as well. So it's got to be the same and different at the same time. So there you I know. Go. There's no. You know what the point is? There's just no winning ever. There's always going to be something. How come you didn't? Oh fuck! I oh, don't yeah. know. No, you you make a movie. But but I, you know one of the things that is I actually found myself getting kind of emotional about was just the way the fla- the kind of the flashbacks of the first movie are yeah. so beautifully woven in yeah. in the way that they're not traditional. It's like, oh, the screen doesn't get wavy, you know, it's just like, yeah. the, but it's just woven into the story. And I mean, I looked at you and McGregor and Johnny Lee Moon, I go, well, those guys still look fucking great. But then when you see the footage from the original movie, and you're like, they look like 12 year olds in the original. 12, don't they? It's crazy. But that idea of, you know, when they were so young and carefree, and even though they were making poor choices, you know, and then now it just feels like all they have are cares. Yes. All they have is the world weighed down. I and mean, what happened in, in, you know, in life, you're just like all of a sudden it, you're just here. So, 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 so movies, movies are time. And they, as an art form, there is nothing can deal with time like movies deal with time. So that you can, because what happens is when we have a favorite film, if it's like Titanic, you, you see Leo and Kate, you have that image of them and it's frozen, absolutely frozen in time. And it's just, it just is in your brain. It'll take you'll take it to your grave that image, <laughs> even though you've seen Leo and Kate in other movies. Sure. But if James Cameron goes back and updates that movie somehow, he didn't die or whatever. If he updates it, that power of unlocking time because it freezes time, and then you can unlock it in movies as well, which is what you try to do here by those cutbacks you're talking about yeah. to the way they were before. It's brutal for actors, absolutely brutal for them, but it returns them to us because we all. 
that's what happens to all of us, of course. Yeah. And it happens to even it happens to our idols, our heroes, our immortalized. You know, because we immortalize people on the screen, really, in a way. Yeah. And movies are extraordinary for that, and that. I remember Fincher said something about this. He, I was remember reading about him saying about that movies are just about extending time or slowing it. That's all movies do. They, and it's true in editing. When you go in editing, that's all you're doing. You're just extending time or slowing it down or, or speeding it up or compressing it um, or, or, or making it vanish. Just make time vanish. <laughs> it's just literally on your day-to-day work in editing. That's literally what you do. And then you have this other thing in cinema, which is that the audience, and this is unique as well, they come in and they give you, they even pay you, and they give you two hours of their time. There you go. I'm not going to do anything else for two hours. There. And that compact with it in an... Some movies are time, really. So yeah. They, they literally are... It is the art form of time, really. And, but are, are, you, are you ever weighed down by the, um, the, the infinite possibilities? I mean, it's, to me, the scariest thing that I imagine about being a director is, okay... We're going to shoot all this stuff. I know what the story is, but now here are a near infinite number of ways that I can present this story. And how do I know which one is the right way to present it? Yeah, well, that, the good thing is that you have – because you've got limited money and, and limited time, you have to – you can't even really consider like that. You, you, you're already work, I mean, it's why restrictions are really important to you. Mm-hmm. Why being boxed in is really important because they, they restrict your field of vision straight away. You, 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 you have to kind of cut your cloth straight away. Um, and I like that as well, because you can sometimes bounce out of those boxes, you know, but, you, but it's defined for you. Whereas infinite choices, it's like the most powerful person in the world can do anything, but they don't know what to do because they can literally do anything. Right. So we, we t- with our movies, we tend to take less money. than you. We could take more money. And that opens up choices that you've got to you, but it doesn't make you freer, I don't think. Right, of course, because then you you it's, it almost feels like uh, like a like a fish in a bowl. Like if you give a fish a giant thing, it's going to get bigger, and if you you know it's going to fit to whatever size, so it's not going to help you necessarily to blow through more money if you don't need to. That's what we we, we made this film, The Beach, and we took yeah. lots of money for that movie. That was uh, the biggest movie that we've made budget wise, and it it wasn't it didn't really suit me. It felt like. It, and it, 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 it's huge. it becomes a huge oil tanker that you can that is full of incredible riches, you know. It's packed full of skill and incredible talents, and but you can't move it. It takes you a day to turn it round. It's like <laughs> oh, unbelievable trying to move it round. Whereas when you light lighter weight, you can kind of you've got more flexibility. Really, I'm sure the studios appreciate that you want to take less money <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for the movies, but it does seem like a tremendous responsibility. And the more money you take on, the more people want to get involved. The yeah. more well, you would, wouldn't you, if you gave somebody hundred million dollars? Sure. We we bandy these terms around like hundred million dollars. Yeah, it costs one hundred and fifty million dollars, and you start not realizing what that means. But that's like a small nation's gross annual products or something right. you know it's right. like it's, it's incredible amounts of money yeah. and of course people are going to want to have it they're going to want to know what's happening to it whereas in fact movies don't know what they're doing generally speaking otherwise there wouldn't ever be any unsuccessful ones right it'd all be perfect right <laughs> which would be a really boring world as well <laughs> but you, people if you've got if you've invested a lot of money they want to they want to know it's in good hands and they want to know what's going on and a lot of the time you can't you don't really know what's going on you can bullshit people yeah. and kind of sell them something and tell them and give the impression you know what you're doing but you it's a mystery really about where you emerge at the end 
um, what comes out at the end is not like this one, uh, um, the Train Spotting sequel. I, I, I remember watching it after we'd, we'd been editing for about a month, and I remember watching it, and it wasn't. I there were all these children running around in it. Every scene had all these children or images of children or imaginary children. There's two imaginary children yeah. in it as well. And I thought, well, and I'd cast all these children. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd cast them, I'd searched for them, I'd directed them on the day and d- done all that. And yet when you accumulate in a film, it kind of became about where were the fathers, you know? And that's one of the things it's about really in a way, how poor they are right. as fathers. Because like literally three of them are fathers and how poor they are as fathers. Um, in 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 the in the twenty years that's happened, and yet I didn't really. We never really talked about that on the set. We talked about time passing and things like that, but we never really talked about manhood. Not really. Right. It's a mystery that sort of emerges at the end of the film. If you're if it's working well, you know, there's some. There's, so there's part of that brew that's not quite predictable, really, in a way that. But if somebody gives you one hundred and fifty million dollars, they want to know exactly what's <laughs> going to come out at the end, you know, right. and understandably. Do you think they ultimately grew up by the end of the second movie, or do you? I mean, I don't want to spoil anything for any, obviously, for people who haven't seen it yet. But it sort of feels to me like ah, oh, they kind of just go back to the, you know, like they yeah. don't, re- you know, like maybe they're just in this endless loop. Well. You can read it. There's sort of a couple of ambiguous images where you could read it either way, really. Yeah. I mean, the the final image, which is of Renton, you could read either way. Right. Definitely. There is some progress made in in, in atonement or acknowledgement, some kind of self-consciousness. There's just little... Yeah, so it's not, with, it's not without... If you're hopeful, in, if you're hopefully inclined, if you're inclined towards hope, yeah. you'll find stuff in there, yeah. Well, that's interesting because it – do you feel like it's better for the audience to kind of make their own decisions about what they think is going on or do you like to be understood? Do you like your message to be understood? Well, you start off like that. You you definitely think, oh, this will <laughs> <this'll> show them. <laughs> They'll know exactly. <laughs> the truth is you learn quite quickly that actually people do read things differently and you can't control you, – you, I mean – I remember when we made 20, we made 28 Days Later about social rage because there were lots of incidents in Britain of a, 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 a completely unacceptable and very extreme social rage, like um, people beating each other up over, over accidents in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in um, you know, uh, car accidents mm-hmm. and things like that. Really terrible things happening like that. But when we were filming... Um, so that's what we set out to make. And, and we set everything up and it was going to be about that. And those were all our reference points. All our photographs were about this. And that was the kind of metaphor it was for. And then while we were filming, uh, 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And the film became much more about the vulnerability of cities. But you, and you go... I, I, you watch the film, and I'm sure that's one of the reasons that it worked in America. It was because it, it came out quite quickly after 9-11. And it was one of the first films that looked at how vulnerable cities were, mm-hmm. that they could just vanish in front of your eyes and you would be left feeling very vulnerable sure. and scared. And, but you can't predict that. You know, there's no way you know that. You bump into time sometimes, and sometimes it seems to elevate the film. Sometimes it makes them irrelevant, of course, as well. Sure. But a really great horror movie will sort of take the cultural fear zeitgeist yeah. and and do something symbolic with it so that when you're watching it it's not just oh then that guy died and that yeah, guy then you yeah. really feel like 
holy shit, yeah, you feel what it would like... I do? What are we going to do? Yeah, yeah, you feel it on a deeper level, I think. Yeah. Do you have a, is there a particular type, like what, what film did you feel the most comfortable on? What film did you feel like, oh, this is me, this is the most, you know, Danny Boyle movie of all of them? I don't know, you kind of like, I don't know, you, you can't quite do that because what happens is that they get distorted by, if they do work and they become popular, they, those ones get distorted and they don't belong to you anymore. They're kind of taken over by their reception. Right. And, the, and you're left with the ones that nobody wants, <laughs> that nobody cared for. And you do care for them. You compensate by caring for them more. Sure. So there's like films like Millions and Sunshine, which nobody went to see, or Trance. Nobody went to see these films. And you kind of like huddle around them and kind, of, <laughs> and kind of look after them, really. So it's more that than thinking that's the one, you know. that it, th- There is one that's, that's the best or the most... Uh, the more, the one you feel most comfortable with. So when you're, what is the experience for you coming off a movie that you know, coming off a movie like Twenty Eight Days Later or Train Spotting, and then coming off a movie that wasn't as popular? Like, do you are you inspired the same amount both ways? You go, well, I'll, the next time I'm gonna, or do you feel like, hey, you know, I did what I was supposed to do, and it doesn't matter if you know a hundred million people didn't see it, <laughs> I did what I wanted to do. So you know, fuck everyone. Yeah, no, you just feel angry. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> the injustice of it. You know, you kind of like, you can see that we, we, we take it very seriously. The blame game. Yeah, the release pattern. It's, that's the favourite one. The release pattern was all wrong. You know. March. Ah, oh, <laughs> yeah. put that in March? Who thought of that? Ah. Boy, we and really boned that one. Yeah, so um, you tend to blame whatever you can. But, um, no, it's good, actually, because it, it's it's a big part of it actually. It's a it's a it's a big part of it of it of them not working when they don't work. It doesn't feel like it at the time. You obviously you don't relish it at the time, but you it is a big part of it really where you feel because it's a as a world it's a very very ego inflating world. Sure, you know that especially if something works like whoa, you know you get everything blown up you it's just like (laughs) and it can be quite giddying that and you do need to be it's literally brought down to earth you know i fear for anybody who's too successful because god knows how you keep your feet on the ground i've really no idea you know you're pretty successful yeah well i've had a few failures (laughs) yeah there you go that's how good they are for you you think those are important yeah yeah it's like it's like in anything and it makes you try it makes you return and go again as Beckett says, again, again, you know, you go again. Um, yeah, you've got to keep going like that, really. I is it is, it is it weird? Is it is like holding an Oscar? Is it, do you go? Well, I don't know. What else? What do I do now? I mean, does it does it feel weird? That is weird because because they you I I can't look at it. I mean, I literally I had it out for a while, a bit, and it was just impossible. I mean, every day you get up and it's that they are magnetic to look at. You know, you can't just walk by it, and it's like every day you're like that. And of course, it's like you just can't do that. So I packed it away. I mean, oh, I you got, did? Oh, yeah. You just can't look at it every day. I wonder day. if that's kind of. I wonder if that's also an English quality too of like, do not hold your head too high, or yeah, someone's going to smack it down. They certainly will in in Britain. That's certainly that's certainly true. Yeah. No, but you can't. It's not. It's not particularly healthy for you to dwell on those things like that. Really, you should also be pushing. The boat out as well. You should also that thing I was saying about not knowing what you're doing. That's also very important to to have a kind of like it's not it's an ambition actually rather than a modesty. But you should be circumspect about how good you are and think 
no, I don't know how to do that. How would I do that? I'd loved about doing a space movie because I've always loved space movies, but I hadn't a clue how to do it. And I remember reading, you'll never do, I remember these directors saying, once you do one, you'd never do another unless you have to for commercial reasons, like mm-hmm. a sequel or something like that, a franchise. You, you make one space movie and that's it. And it's true. Why is it? Well, it kills you. The simplest thing in the world, like gravity. Mm-hmm which we all suffer and all take for granted, how you make a film where there's no gravity. I mean, I can't tell you what that is like. <laughs> the effort involved. Every time I watch a space movie, I think, that is brilliant, mate. Whoever you are, you <laughs> made this movie, and I don't care that people don't like it. It's brilliant, because just to achieve that in itself yeah. is so, so difficult. And it's... Anyway, so... It, it, yeah. So I didn't know how to make that, and I, and I found out. And it was hard, and nobody liked the film either. So at the time, they all like it now. Lots of people talk about it now. It's a film that gets lots of affection now, but at the time, nobody went to see it. Because it released in March, actually. That was March, yeah. No, it was the release patterns. It was the release release patterns. But it is kind of funny how sometimes a film can just maybe not hit at the right time and then years later people go ah yeah. wait a minute this makes a lot of sense now where did that where did that go i know but you've also you've also those are specialists as well those people that you tend to meet who are saying those things those are people like us who are interested right we, we're interested in it the public wave of films is something that you are susceptible to that wave of the public interest what they're interested in and again we say it's oh, it's too influenced by PR campaigns or money or big studios buy it. And, but it's not true that. I think there is a wave of interest that, that the public have and you are at the mercy of it. And, that, and, you, and you should be. You should not be exempt from that, really. It's, it's healthy, really, that in a way. Yeah. It's baffling <laughs> as well. You can't predict it and it'd be terrible if you could oh, absolutely predict it, you know, but you can't. It keeps everybody on their toes, I think. Is there a type of movie that you still feel like, ah, but someday I'm going to do that? Like, do you have something in the back of your head that you feel like you haven't either been ready for, either, you know, you feel like, oh, I need to get to a certain level before I can do this, or a skill level, or, you know, is there one thing that's way off in your head still? Oh, yeah, a musical. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know... for any director, an original musical is the ultimate, is the is the holy grail, really. I absolutely, it, it's the purest form of it. If you can get your characters to sing, <laughs> and if, have it make sense, and, and and absolutely believe it and go with it like that, that's the ultimate. Uh, that's the degree of difficulty. You know the the, the dives when they do the dives, the yeah. swimming pool dives. Yeah, degree of difficulty. That's the top one. Well, the I original Train Spotting was. Almost a mu- like it almost kind of was a musical. Well, we were gonna do- so the film we were gonna do as a musical was the kids' film we made called Millions. Yeah, because that is a musical. If you look at the ingredients, that is a musical, and we chickened out of it. We were gonna get Noel Gallagher to write the songs. I remember. Oh wow! And get the kids to sing because kids then just can Liam sing. To yell at him while he was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and we chickened out of it, and we lacked confidence. Me, me and the writer Frank Cottrell Boyce, we we kept flirting about it, and then we kind of backed off it and, and didn't have the confidence. Now I'd do it. Now, I, if you come across an idea like that, that is a musical idea. That one, it has an, a beauty and a simplicity about it that suits the musical. There's something very hopeful ultimately about musicals. I think. Um, so I'd love to do one of those still. Yeah. What is the right? What do you think is the right kind of story for a musical? What does it have to have? Well, that one had a very simple moral dilemma, really. 
and, and, a, and a beautiful innocence at the centre of it, which is a young kid confronted with, they found a huge bag of money by a railway. Mm-hmm. And it was like, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> well, we should own up to it. And his, his elder brother told him, don't tell anybody about it. And he said, why not? He said, because if you tell anybody about it, they'll tax it. And he said, all right, okay. <laughs> Stuff like that. So it has this kind of comedic beauty of innocence, really, facing something that's the opposite of innocent really money yeah so it, those simple it has those simple devices i mean love stories obviously as well you know well you're so right though you really you have to nail a musical because if someone just starts singing in the middle of a thing you're like Ugh. and also the song has to be good as well and it has to be pr- produced well like yeah. yeah and the moment where they break into singing has to be absolutely earned yeah, you, know, you can't just do it. Well, you know? listen, I, I, you know, I'm gonna, I want to throw something out at there, and if you know, if you, if you love the <laughs> idea, by all means, run with it. Musical space movie. No one's done it. It is time for a musical space movie. There is a musical space. What movie. What is there? Oh my god, what is it? I've forgotten it now. Ah, shit. Some, it's probably something I should know yeah, that I can't there, remember. There, isn't there a musical in space? Somebody told me there was. Yeah. Can you find? Yeah. Your- <laughs> all right, but that's, that's you know, they'll right. get away with anything. Well, I think, it, I think, it, I think it's time. <laughs> I think it's time. Some sort of a, you know, just it's it's on an asteroid. Some maybe there's a karaoke bar on an asteroid. Oh, no, it, no, 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 it wasn't a musical. It was a love story. Wasn't there a love story in in the in the sequel to two thousand and one? In two thousand ten, yeah, we make was contact. There was, was, was a love. There was a love story in it, wasn't there? Isn't there a love? Isn't there a love relationship in? Because they always used to say the one thing you can't do in space is sex doesn't work in space. Sex doesn't work in space. So they were, we always used to laugh about that. But actually, there's been there's been kind of relationship. Like passengers was a relationship in space, wasn't it? So that's. Well, been I like, honestly think you know I don't know. Here <laughs> you say 2001, just make me think. What are you doing, Dave? This is highly irregular. That would be fucking amazing. The 2001. Maybe it is a 2001 musical that you need to make, man. I don't know, but it feels like you got to do it. So when we were researching Sunshine, we did all this research, and one of the things we found out was that NASA, one of the experiments they were doing on the space lab was they were taking up pig semen Mm -hmm. up into space. And they are doing experiments on insemination in space because it's going to happen at some point. And will there be any consequences for it that we cannot foresee? Sure. So these are all the kind of long-term experiments they're doing. About so they, they they take a pig up to inseminate the pig? Yeah, well, I, I guess they'd get into a lot of trouble if they did it with humans. Yeah, stuff. exactly. <laughs> There'd be a lot of so they do, so apparently they were doing it. They were doing it, but they were doing insemination in space to see if there was any consequences of it. That gravity, for instance, the gravity w- that they would need. Yeah, yeah that there would be any consequences. But I don't know any more about it than that. Oh, I'm sure there's such filthy, dirty things that have happened in because <laughs> they you know they need to know these things. You know, if we're going to go on long journeys at some point to get off this rock, then they need to know what happens if you masturbate in space and it clogs the instruments. They need to know these types of things. They need to know that they, you know, sperm cloud, that's a thing that doesn't exist on Earth. But in space, you know, that's very dangerous. There you go. They say everything, you know, Chris Hadfield, one of the the, the, the astronaut who was on the ISS was yes. on. And, you know, he was saying, you know, even just to use the toilet is such a an insane endeavor <clears throat> yeah. because you have to be strapped in and you ha- you can't like, you know, your body can force you into other directions. I mean, the whole thing is <laughs> just sounds terrible. I went on the I went on the gravity free plane, you know, the one that goes Oh, the vomit comet. Yeah, yeah, I went on that. That was an amazing experience. Was it fun? Yes, it is. I mean, it's like it's quite expensive. It's like I mean, then it was about 
it was just it was over three thousand dollars. But I remember thinking, my God, you will never have an experience like that in your life. Yeah, like that. Would you go into space if you had the opportunity? Oh yes, you would. Oh yes. So I so so I apart from that thing, I last year my daughters, my two daughters, took me to. And I mentioned this because it was like space. So I've always wanted to swim in Lake Baikal, okay, which is which is the lake in Siberia, in eastern Siberia. It's the it's the deepest, biggest freshwater lake in the world. Mm-hmm. There's more freshwater in there than all the Great Lakes of America put together. It's an extraordinary thing. It's shaped like a moon. You look at it, and it's, once you start looking at it, it's mesmerizing. It feels like the center of the world, the real center of the world. You know, like. Empires always measure things from, like the Spanish Empire, or measure distances from Madrid because right. they believe they're the centre of the world, right. etc. But the centre, the actual centre of the world, I think, is this lake, and it's it's growing. It will eventually split. We'll be long gone, but mm-hmm. it'll eventually split Russia in two. It will tear Russia wow. apart eventually. It's the most extraordinary kind of natural phenomenon on Earth. James Cameron's been down it apparently. Oh, I'm sure he know, has. Exploring it, you know. It's uh, anyway. submersible. He's in all sorts he's of lakes. But I wanted to swim in it, so they took me to that, and that was a bit like being in space. Just going at that distance on the Trans-Siberian Express. We we did four days and four nights from Moscow to Irkutsk, and that was an extraordinary experience, like a different meditative experience which i'm sure space would be as well so you got to swim in the lake i did four strokes it was october so if you swam anymore you would have died you could feel your feet disappearing literally like they've been amputated oh my god um this was but it was an incredible experience that sounds terrifying though i mean just that idea of i don't know i have a weird thing about you know like large cavernous bodies of water that sort of feel to me like oh you could just the earth would just swallow you up and that would be it. Well, Lake Baikal won't be for you then. <laughs> no, but I like hearing that it was fun. What did you, when you got out of the water, what what did you think? I thought I felt alive in the way, I mean, just like, I mean, that's a, a plunge pool. A cold plunge pool is going to do that to you. But yeah, I did feel alive. You can drink it as well because it's, it's incredibly pure, fresh water, the whole of it. It's like. It's extraordinary, um, and and, and I, I actually, I'd always wanted when we were t- we were t- we always talked about a sequel to Twenty Eight Days and Twenty Eight Weeks Later, and one of the ideas was to end up at Lake Baikal. That the world, that's where the world would end up, facing a real apocalypse. That's where you'd go, yeah, because you have an endless supply of fresh water there. Right. If everything else was contaminated, that's where you'd go. You'd all end up in Siberia. Well, is it, I mean, are, is there, will you do a third one? <laughs> Come on. Well, no, Alex, I was with, I saw, I saw, it's funny, actually, I saw Alex, so Alex Garland showed me his, his film the other night. Uh, he's been making this film, Annihilation. It's very good, some of it, really good. Um, and uh, he, he has an idea for a third part of it, but I don't know whether it'll actually happen or not. It's kind of like, because there's a one, he's got a wonderful idea, but whether he'll actually get around to writing it or not, I don't know, really. You'd have to, you'll, you'll have to get him on the show and speak to him. I mean, and then, you know, on top of that, it's just really hard to make a movie. Like, it's just the process. It's, it's almost like the process that it, the, the bureaucracy and the process that it takes to make a movie almost feels like it was designed only for people to figure out, like, okay, if you can get past this, you know, it's just like the turtles, the little baby tortoises swimming across, getting across the yeah. sand. If you can get across the sand and not get eaten by a seagull, then you deserved to have this happen. But it seems, you know, like how long, uh, what's the longest process that you had from start, from conception of idea to actually making a movie? We've been, we've been very lucky. We've been quite quick. Well, the ones I've been invol- involved in have been quite quick. You do hear horror stories of, you know, development taking 10 years and things like that to actually get them up and going. What I find 
so bizarre is that what you're doing is, most of the time what you're doing is realism. It's just real life, like we're living now. Mm -hmm. And yet to repeat a bit of it, plausibly, takes you 40, 400 times the amount of time it takes to do something real, (laughs) to actually repeat it on film, that exact moment, and make it plausible and acceptable and believable, takes you 400 times that amount of time to actually recreate it on film. That is bizarre, don't you think? Well, it it is, but, you know, especially because... You're, I feel like your style is so unique. Do, are you seeing where the camera is supposed to go in every scene as it's happening? Or do you, in, on the day, do you go, oh, you know, maybe I kind of want to try this here? It's better if you do it on the day. They're always the best. Like, it's all, you, you, you have to have a plan A, which is, has been announced beforehand, because everybody needs to think they know what they're doing. <laughs> because there's so many people involved and so much planning involved. But actually, plan B is always better, which you make it up on the day. And, and that's because you shouldn't, do, you shouldn't plan too much without the actors. And once the actors, for the, anyway, the kind of films I do, the, um, once the actors come into the room, that's when you should make your decisions, really. Because oh, wow. then they feel like the, 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 it's being built around them rather than the, they're being inserted into it. Right. You know, which is a common thing that they feel, understandably, they turn up and it's like everything's decided. Right. And I just say the lines, which is how some people like to operate, sure. But I'd much prefer it to feel like it's emerging out of them. So if you can hold the decision making for as late as possible, it's scary because you can come a cropper with it and fall behind and all those terrible sins. But actually, it's the best way if you can. And also, everybody's different on the day anyway. You know, actors are they're different people every day because obviously life's happened to them in between, you know, in the meantime. And so they're a different person. They'll play a scene slightly differently one day than they will another day. There are, there's no empirical truth that they'll always play. It. It's written this way and it will always be played that way. They do nuance it with their own experience every and it'll change depending on which day you catch them on, really. Yeah, but it's just, this, you know, the d- directing in particular just feels like you have to be, it just seems like such a dichotomy of you need to be in control, but also you need to know that you don't have control over anything because there's just so many moving parts. Yes, I, I, and I think you, you, you acknowledge, you have to, you there's lots of people can make films, and, there's lo- and I work with lots of people who have, who would I can tell would be very very good directors. They have vision, they have a kind of craft that would allow them to do it, but they don't want that responsibility. They genuinely don't want the responsibility of making the decision because sometimes you have to make decisions and they're not necessarily the correct one, but they are the one that'll work for the day, that'll work on that day. It's very practical business in a way. You've got to kind of just get through the day and get everybody on board through the day as well, yeah. in a way. And a lot of people just don't want that kind of responsibility, really. But, um, yeah, you are, but you, are the, you are the leader, and they want you to be the leader. Even if you're making the occasional bad decision, they prefer that to indecision. Right. What they hate is indecision. Right. And also, as long as you're making it and they're not responsible for it. It's fine. <laughs> it wasn't my idea anyway. What do you think are your strengths and weaknesses? What do you think you're really good at? And what are some things that you go, oh, I wish I were better at this particular thing? I wish, yeah. Um, I wish I was better at character. I look at, you know, I look at films that really, really, really care about character deeply and I admire them very, very much because I think ultimately audiences watch character more than anything. We, 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 we like to think they watch style and stuff, but really if they don't, they follow character more than anything. I wish I was better at character study, but I'm too impatient for that. <laughs> that's my kind of like, and that's my, um, that's what I am good at is impatience. I, 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 I'm, 
I don't apologise for it. If people don't like that, that's fine. I like films to have propulsion and, and compulsion and, and be moving forward always. So I have that impatience that keeps them moving forward. And that doesn't allow you time, really, to study character in, in great, great depth, really. And so what, what do you think you're good at? Like, what do you... What, in, 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 impatience. That, that's the impatience. Yeah, that's the good that's thing, a, yeah. yeah that, I think that is a good thing, really, that I'm very impatient about wanting the film to have forward momentum. I, I, kind of, I mean, it's changed now because it's all digital, but it always used to be... always used to amaze me. It was 24 frames a second. It was literally going through at a, a huge speed. And I thought, that's why, I, that's why movies are action. They are action. <laughs> that's why an action movie is the purest movie there is really because it's always about forward momentum and it's and you know it's the old silent movies where, where there's a journey they're always right. moving like the general it's always moving yeah you know everything's moving across the screen like that and when people went to the first time people went to see movies they were just like screaming because there was a train right inside a building yes and it was coming towards <laughs> them and they were like and they love that and that's the beauty of that's the origin of cinema i think in a way mass cinema which is that you go there and have that mass experience. I love that. Don't you think virtual reality is going to make it weird, though? Because in the, in the way that... Because I think it'll be great for some things and not great for a lot of things. But I still think that you do need a conductor to go, this is what you should be looking at for this story. Like this idea where you can go into a 360-degree immersive environment and it's like, okay, you pick what you want to see. It's like, no, like someone should, you know, a director needs to tell you what the story is. I, I, I believe so. But I can't, I'm old-fashioned in that way. And my daughter works in VR at the moment and and they don't think like that. They right. are, and it, it's to... It's a world beyond the door I'll never get through, really, I don't, I don't think. You know, I, mean, I admire it when I watch it. And uh, I watch that Chris Milk's films, which are really beautifully made. And they are emotional. I always thought VR wouldn't be emotional. It would just be technical wizardry. Sure. But his films are genuinely emotional. Where you start to tear up, you know, you can feel yourself being emotional about people's stories you're hearing about. Um, so there are clearly huge possibilities. Yeah, they'll they're, figure it out. Yeah, they're just in the, <laughs> someone the, will figure it out. They're in the foothills at the moment. Yeah, but uh, you know, I remember the first time I saw Train Spotting, and it the, when, when it was in the theater when it came out, and you know, twenty years ago, was it twenty? It was like was neither was like ninety five, ninety six, ninety six, ninety six, yeah. and um, but just the idea of. Uh, realizing, oh, he's showing me what it feels like to them. Yeah. And that is such a, that was such a unique way rather than, you know, having the characters tell you, this is what this feels like. Yeah. But to see them get absorbed in the carpet or yeah. to see like going into a toilet, no, and he's diving in this beautiful, you know, it's romanticized, like kind of from their point of view, romanticizing all these really awful, gritty things. Yes. yes. Was that, you know, was that sort of the driving um, MO for that movie, or was that just? Did you see those as style choices when you were making them? There, there were, there were, there were, there was such kind of, um, there's such moral high ground that's normally expressed about any kind of drug use in in in, in culture. Um, well, certainly in film, um, that it was to it was to deliberately contradict that and to say and to ask the question. Um, not why do people use drugs, but what what is it like for people? Why are they using drugs like that? And it and it it, it was to try and the problem is characters that Irving Welsh has in his books are normally looked at really as victims 
really. They're, they're looked at from a distance rather than... And, and they're judged. And they're normally judged either in, in one or two ways, as a victim or as evil, mm-hmm. you know, and depending on your perspective. And it was to try and eschew that perspective and actually those perspectives and take it from the perspective inside. And at the time of the first film, there was a huge use throughout Britain of ecstasy. Ecstasy had exploded across Britain. And if, if anything, the, if you're going to say the first film's about drug use, it's not really. But if you're going to say that, it's more about the energy of the film is more, about, is more akin to ecstasy than heroin, which is heroin is a very dull drug to watch being used because nothing happens, mm-hmm. really. People just really doze off you know, in the corner of the room for eight hours, ten hours. Um, there's very, very little happens with it. Um, so it was, more the, um, it was more the energy of the drug of the day, really, ecstasy. And it was to try and actually... But it was to try and see it from the perspective of the users, really. And that they, as they said in the film, you know, we're not stupid. We do it because we get something from it, really. It was that very simple perspective, which was not permissible, really, in the cinema. generally speaking certainly not in a mainstream film and of course it should be because it's not going to lead to it's not going to lead to more drug use because you can see in the film if you look at the whole film there's some terrible things happen you know to some of the people in the film and um so it's just going to give people more knowledge and you must always believe in more access to knowledge and experience and culture is part of giving you that those tools to access more knowledge and more experience. Yeah. I mean I don't I don't think the movie in any way made it seem glamorous, you know, particularly because it's juxtaposed with these really tragic things happening yeah. or even just, you know, just the, you know, shit flying everywhere. It's just like seeing the real, like, yeah. the, the sort of gritty reality of, like, this is what these, yeah. this is what their daytime lives are like. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a scene in the new movie where Spud, Renton saves Spud. He's about to, he's trying to commit suicide, <laughs> yes. actually. And it's a terrible scene in a way. It's almost unwatchable what is happening to him at one point with a bag on his head and stuff like that. But, yeah. And, it's kind of Irving's world specialises in that, in that kind of like that. There's a beauty and then a huge comedy and then these gross out moments of almost unwatchable repulsion where you are repelled by what you're watching as well. So you get the full gamut of the experience. But really. they're always justified. The, like the disgusting moments, it's <laughs> never just for shock. I mean, it is shocking, but it never feels no, like, a... oh, he's just, this is like, it's always for a reason. It's always. Yeah. You know, do you think that's part of your job is to – I mean this is a dumb question. Yes, of course it is. But the idea that, you know, you're just figuring out how to justify the craziest thing that you can show and still root it in, in some sort of a reality or give it a reason? No, you don't think like that because of these days, of course, you could do anything. You can sure. do anything really. But I mean story-wise. I mean story-wise because, you know – there's a version of another movie which is like which is a crazy comedy which is a guy shits in the bed and they throw the sheets and it gets everywhere and people are like oh my god that's crazy <laughs> you know in this movie it's hor- in train spotting it's like <gasps> horrifying but it makes so much sense it's like this is part of his character this is what's happening yeah. this is what this is doing and so it doesn't feel like ah he was just trying to gross everyone out you root it you root it through character right yeah. you do root it through character and you want to feel it through that character really and that's what I mean about waiting until the day when you make the decision is that you do as much planning as you can with the actor who's responsible for that moment. And then, and and then if it's on the day only, then on the day you make your decisions about the scene on the day. So it, it feels like the actor should own it. 
you know, you're not imposing it on them. You can impose gross out stuff on anybody. Sure. But, but if it comes out of the character, you'll have the... It, it'll feel like it's bred from the actor themselves, from their character. Right. Really. Did uh, you have a premiere? Was there a big premiere for Trainspotting when it came out? The first one? Yeah. Yeah, there was one. We did one in Scotland. We did a simultaneous one. One There's rival cities in Scotland, Glasgow and Edinburgh, sure. rival cities. There's a great rivalry between the two cities. And so we did simultaneous ones. Of course. <laughs> very you smart. Be very careful. <laughs> You've got to make sure. So we did one and then we raced across the motorway. So we opened one and then raced across the motorway and was there for the end of the other one. So nice. All that kind of stuff. So it was simultaneous. Yeah. Oh, I was just wondering if you had, because, you know, I, I remember when the first time I saw that movie, I, I thought, oh, I, don't, I, haven't, I haven't seen anything like this before. So just the experience of seeing it with, you know, do you get excited knowing that you're about to show this to a group of people who have no idea what they're in store for and then just kind of watch? Watching how they process it as it's happening. I, the one I do remember is after. So after it played in Britain, it went to the Cannes Film Festival. And what happens in Cannes is that you present the film, the big night in Cannes, your know, big premiere in Cannes, uh, to the to the bourgeoisie of Cannes <laughs> in the cinema. And you, you you're, you're in a kind of row in the uh, in the middle. And as the film ends, you have to stand, and a spotlight comes on you, and you have to turn round and face the audience. And I remember turning round and facing that audience and they were <laughs> clapping like this. And I remember looking around and thinking, they look absolutely like they do not know what that was at all. <laughs> it was like they looked baffled, completely baffled. Do you think the they experience. were or do you think they were just being French? I don't know. I, I was about to say they were being polite, but they're not particularly polite, the French necessarily. But they were baffled, I think. They were completely baffled by the experience. You know? Yeah, I guess, I guess every, you know, I mean, again, it's sort of like what you said earlier, but... Every person, every audience, they're going to bring their own baggage into a thing, you know, which is why it's impossible to make something for everyone. It's like everyone is, you know, they're, they're going to bring in all their issues. They're going to see what they see. And so it's funny to sort of see how that doesn't affect just a person, but like culturally what things play differently in different countries and how they play in different countries. I know, yeah. I mean, it's uh, – the, the, you, you can't – I mean, I suppose there are people who are very good at it. Pixar – are very good at designing a film that can appeal to everyone. Sure. It seems to have an appeal to everyone, and that's an extraordinary skill. But I think uh, but I, I would find that impossible, really. I don't even think about... You can't even really think about people, about other people. You have to think... And I'm sure Pixar are like this. You have to think about the story and your, uh, your interest in the story. And it may well be that that's completely out of kilter with everyone else, which is when you have a disaster. Like you've made something and nobody's interested in watching it. Absolutely no one wants to watch it. But you still, you've had that obsession just the same, really. I suppose there are people who design it, not caring what they think themselves about it, trying to think, what do these people think about it? Sure. But, but I suppose the kind of stuff I do is that I'm obsessed. I go into a kind of frenzy of interest in a particular story and hope that it's shared with other people eventually, you know, when it finally comes out. Sure. And then... Is there a certain point in the process of making a film where you feel like, okay, I think, I, think we're, I think we have it now. And is that at different points throughout the process for each movie? It's very weird. I remember when we shot the beginning of 28 Days Later, we did that. The beginning where he wanders around London mm -hmm. and London's deserted. I remember we shot that a long time before we shot the rest of the movie because we shot that at a time we could get London. It was like at the, the where the sunrise was earliest mm -hmm. and London was most likely to be deserted. So we shot that over a week at 4.30 every morning for a couple of hours before the traffic started. Um, 
And when we'd shot that, we put a piece of music on it, the Godspeed You Black Emperor music that's on it. I remember when I saw that and I remember thinking, that's good. <laughs> that's good. What will the rest of it be like? Um, <laughs> but it's, it's rare that you think that where you, you, you achieve that uh, at any point. No, it's kind of more left to... the. Well, and that was different as well because it was like a standalone opening sequence. You can judge it really. Most of the time, sequences don't stand on their own. Like in the new movie, there's a great, there is a great sequence where they sing a song at a loyalist club. Right. They sing yep. a song about no more Catholics at this, <laughs> which is very, very fun to see. And I remember thinking that should work because Ewan and Johnny perform it brilliantly. They, and I remember, I remember thinking that should work, but you've no idea really whether it will or not. You've no idea whether it'll survive in the end because you might cut it. Because you should cut stuff. If it doesn't work, you should be prepared to throw out. They all say that. You should throw away your favourite scene. Really? Or you, oh, they all say that. You should throw away your favourite shot and your favourite scene. You should get rid of it because it, you, you're, you're, you're being over-affectionate. Right, because it's too personal to yeah, you. Because yeah, because it, yeah, it's like not relevant to the story. Or you should be prepared to kill your babies, you know, because if it's not relevant to the story, it should go, really. Right. That well, is tough, when you, especially when you spent three days shooting a scene. Yes. <laughs> but you've got to be prepared to do that. And yeah. you literally killed a baby in train spotting. It was a literal, <laughs> that scene is still haunts. <laughs> it still haunts. So, so, we, so obviously there's this baby in the, in the original film that dies. And um, it's referred to in the second film yes. as one of the consequences of their, their aging, really. They're, they're coming to terms with what's happened in their past. And so we thought we'd better find out what's happened to that baby. Because, of course, if we're going to use the baby in the new film... Right. And then if that baby has... I don't know. Right. You know, you can't imagine what could have happened to that because that baby will now be 22 years old. Right. So we... In fact, it was a twin. We'd cast twins because when you cast little babies, you, you try and cast tw- ca- twins or double, sure, so double you can babies. swap them out. Because yeah. when they're crying or yeah. stuff, you can't stop them crying. Right. So, you're gonna, so you get a double, double hiss at it if you can get it. Anyway, so we, we, we found these twins on Facebook. Oh, my God, you found them. <laughs> and they're adults now. And they are adults now and very glamorous, these girls, very beautiful girls who are, like, lovely. And they came to the kind of um, premiere party. We, we, we kind of reached out to them and said, well, you should come to the party then. And they went round, they're very glamorous girls, Scottish girls, and they went round the party introducing themselves as we're the dead baby. <laughs> <laughs> Which was disconcerting for people, these incredibly glamorous girls. And so they, they got great fun out of I mean, there is, a, there, is an op- there, there was an, an opportunity to just have that baby as an adult on the ceiling, like, I, is anyone going to get me down? What's happening? But it really, you know, it, it, it tied so beautifully with the first one. And does it, does it feel to you like this story is all wrapped up now? Does it feel, you know... I mean, I'm sure when you first made Train Spotting, you probably never thought, I'm going to make another one of these. No, we didn't. And, and, and we should have done, because if you... Proper sequel stuff, you, you, you move straight away to make a... You know, you bring out your next one quite quickly after sure. your... You know, that's the commercial thinking anyway. But we never even, we never even imagined that. What you hope is that you kind of like the terror was that it would be bad <laughs> because then it was you would never be forgiven for right. having returned to something that people had such affection for, and then you made a shit film, and and that was the only pressure I ever felt was sometimes I'd see the actors looking at me out of the corner of my eye, and I could tell what they were thinking. <laughs> this better not be shit, Danny. They were literally thinking that we love it, but it better not be shit. And. So- <laughs> Well, yeah. So why? So what made you decide to go ahead and do it? Well, because we had a kind of 
there's a personal element in it that's the kind of, so we we weren't we, we never wanted to call it train spotting this is the weird thing is that and, and I know, obviously, part of my brain, the rational part of my brain, knows we're going to have to use the title "Train Spotting" somewhere in it, right? You know, but we, we, John Hodge and I, the screenwriter, we had this insistence that we were going to call it something different, with nothing to do with Train Spotting. It was going to, be, in fact, it was going to be called uh, "The Least Unfamiliar," which is a terrible title, and we knew it was a terrible <laughs> title. But we were defiantly saying it's got to be called that. Because it'll be, it may not be anything to do with the first film. We may never even refer to the first film. It, it, it's got to be its own thing. It's got to have its own identity. You mustn't judge it as a sequel straight away, which, of course, everybody does. Sure. So you cling on to that for as long as possible. And eventually you give in, and you have to give in and reference it. But, but you keep hold of it until you feel like it's, it has an identity of its own. And that's really important to it, that it feels like it's its own thing. And it was a more personal element to do with the passing of time and age and manhood and the behaviour of men over time. It felt like that was the film that we were making, really. And that then it can, then you can stick a label on it that attaches it to the first one. Because sure. we, we'd worked out by then its relationship with the first one. Sure. So it's, it's a weird process to describe that. But it was very important to us at the time. You know? How have you changed since the first one? It's hard, isn't it? You get, you kind of... When, if, you, if you're lucky enough to be able to make a few films, you, you kind of learn stuff. And, and, and that's not necessarily a help. It really isn't. Um, you'd think it would be, logically. I think there's an innocence, really, about the early ones that is more, is more valuable to you than all the technical skills you sure, pick up sure, sure. later. So you kind of hope... You, you hope you haven't learned too much. You hope you don't learn yourself out of being interesting really i think you 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 hope you don't attain skills that actually stop you being interested you become more perfect because you rely too much on those on those things and you get yeah yeah. it's so cunning film it's so manipulative and you know it's so concocted even in its most innocent state so when it's in its least innocent state it's massive concoction of uh, you know effects and tricks and things that you're using to and yet there should be at its heart there should be something very very simple really and and heartbreaking actually about it because you were looking at ourselves up there and we've decided like in some ancient society where we've decided to make figurines of the gods that are 40 feet high our gods are ourselves that's really what we've done isn't it we've got away with the god we've done away with the gods generally speaking and we've made gods of ourselves and we look at ourselves 40 feet high and that that has to be there has to be a beauty and simplicity and heart and something heartbreaking about that ultimately you know when you watch emma stone in breakdown in la la land you know it's just like she's got like well it's heartbreaking you know it just tears you apart and that that's why we love actors and why we've put up with what how crazy they are (laughs) No, we do, don't we? Because you, they have that huge value for us. Of us, of us it's a really important part of our culture. And not just our culture, of everything about us is to watch ourselves up on those screens play out these stories and to lose ourselves in them. You know, it's really um essential part of being a human being, I think, that storytelling thing, which you do through actors. Sure. When you, and, but that idea of having to harness these, like, emotional tornadoes that are performers and just figuring out, like... How can I just get them to fling out the right thing for this? <laughs> they're worth it. You have to believe they're worth it in the end to put up with everything. Because, and and I, I love them, actually, because it, it, it's expensive for them putting it out there. 
It's not emotionally expensive. Emotionally, I think it is, yeah. yeah. And, and representing us, which they do. They're literally our representatives, you know, up there, living out these things that we may never get to that state, but we wished we did. Or we're glad we never got to that state. We want to see it experienced, and we don't have to go through it, but we see it experienced. It's very primordial, I think, really, in a way. It, you know, it looks very skillful and very kind of like technical and all that kind of stuff, but its basic impact is very important to us, you know? Yeah, and also, can you, can you forget what you know? Yeah. I, and this is such an interesting idea, which I, no one's ever said before, but this idea of forgetting what you know. I, I have a car, I have a little card that's in front of my computer, and it says something like, um, I'm sure it's a famous quote, and I apologize if I'm not attributing it to anyone. But uh, but the quote is something like, uh, f- "Like f- f- discover your discover your recipes and abandon them." Yeah. And how do you do yes. that? How do you forget? Yes. Like, how do you forget? How do you abandon that each time? Especially because inherently, like you said, you're going to learn more each time. So how do you? And it's even going to be in your muscles, even if it's not intellectual knowledge. It's still in your body. You yes, know? it's really, it's really, it's, it's really tricky trying to. It's 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 to prevent you thinking you know you, it's to prevent you thinking you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, what, what are you doing? You, <laughs> if you just know what you're doing, what are you doing? You just it's just by rote. Whereas if you get the privilege of making a film, you should be literally on the limits of what you're capable of, and and it should be kind of vibrating in front of you, almost out of your control, but but still just within your control. You know, but also out of your control and bits of it you don't understand until it gets an audience, which is the final part of the equation is what they bring to it, as we were talking about before, because they can bring something depending on what's happened in the world that day. They'll bring something different. They'll read it in a different way. You know, they'll just see it in a, in a, in a new light, depending on what's happened that day to them. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, and I hope that you take the idea seriously of doing, and I'm going to add another element to it, an Italian space musical. (laughs) Just, you know, if I I see that happen and you win Academy Award, just a small thank you, thank you. It all all began here. It all began right here. So, uh, Trainspotting 2, what's the release date? March 17th. Trainspotting 2, March 17th. Uh, it was wonderful and delightful to have you on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, you so much. It was a pleasure, pleasure. to speak to you. Cool. Danny Boyle, enjoy your burrito, everyone. <laughs> the end. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, the host of How I Built This, a podcast that gives you a front row seat to how some of the biggest products were built and the innovators, entrepreneurs, and idealists behind them. Every week, I speak to someone new. Stories like Justin Wolverton's, a lawyer who just wanted a healthy alternative to ice cream, so he created Halo Top in his Cuisinart. Or Todd Graves, who grew his fried chicken restaurant Raising Cane's into one of the most successful fast food chains in the U.S. All of these great conversations can help you learn how to think big, take risks, and navigate crises in life and work from people who've done all of that and more. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.